imagine a soldier assigned to guard duty at a forward operating base. As the night hours stretch on with nothing happening, boredom sets in. And knowing that some of his buddies are having a good time without him, he decides to step away just for a minute to see what they're up to. Now no one is left watching that fence line or that wall. The entire base is in danger of a warningless attack. The official title for that action is dereliction of duty. If committed in a time of war, the maximum punishment is the death penalty. By abandoning his post, that soldier put at risk the lives of every other person on the entire base. Lives that had been trusted, that he had been trusted to watch over, to guard over, and to protect. Perhaps a more common example of a dereliction of duty would be just simply falling asleep or uh, perhaps simply being distracted by something else. And none of us know anything about distraction these days. Throughout 1 Timothy, Paul has called on Timothy to wage the good warfare and fight the good fight of the faith. And he recognizes the conflict uh, that we are in as part of Christ's kingdom and the danger that we constantly face from our enemy, the devil. He recognizes these things, the conflict, the danger, the enemy. He addresses each of these things. And he, we could see each local church, including Risen King Church here in Hurricane, we could see each local church as an outpost of Christ's kingdom see us as guards that have been placed to protect God's household from external or internal dangers and enemies. Our risen king, Jesus, has called on elders and the rest of his body to guard and oversee and look out for that which is most valuable to him. Right? Elders specifically called to oversee, but that doesn't mean leave like the rest of the body passive. That's why, that's why I say both of those things there. What is most valuable to Christ, our King? It's his bride. The church. In guarding this deposit entrusted to us, the deposit here meaning like property or something else valuable, instead of the soldier leaning on that guard element of it, we could talk you know, about family. And if I asked you to watch out for my my family, and you just wander away, or, or a particular valuable. I mean, think of uh, the soldiers at, I don't know if it's the, the, the Tower of London watching over the, the jewels, the crown jewels, and they're just like, oh, sorry, there's this really funny YouTube video. Uh, I had no idea that the thief came in, stole that stuff, or, or something, something like that. So it's like, that's no excuse, right? You had been entrusted with this. You were supposed to guard it. So deposit as, as uh, Paul mentions in verse 20 of chapter 6, 1 Timothy, like property or something else valuable. And guarding this deposit entrusted to us means avoiding or turning from what Paul calls irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Irreverent. Not necessarily a word that we use all the time, but it describes that which is godless, that which is worthless, that which is profane. And a lot of times when we think about that, we think of something that, that is supposed to be treated as sacred that isn't. Like when we think of profaning something or using profanity, we'd be like taking God's name, which is to be honored above all, as holy, uh, and treating it as if it was ordinary. Uh, but there are just ordinary things. Like there are that, that which is by nature sacred and should be set apart and treated as worthwhile. And then there are just uh, ordinary things. And so we have to decide, are we going to treat the special, the sacred things as sacred and God honoring and with reverence? Or are we going to treat them low? But also there's just ordinary, not immoral, profane things. But in guarding what has been entrusted to us, are we going to focus on ordinary things? Irreverent babble, worthless, empty chatter. Babble, that's an that's a interesting word, isn't it? When we think about babbling, it may be cute when it comes from a baby, except when it's during one of my sermons coming from my own children. A little bit less cute over time. 
Maybe cute when it comes from a baby. They're just making random sounds that mimic communication. They don't really mean anything. They're learning to talk. I'm not dissing babble. Cute from a baby, not cute from an adult, right? Unless an adult's talking to a baby. But if we were having a conversation, hey, Elisha, be like, what is wrong with that guy? It's not cute when it comes from an adult. And then thinking about irreverent babble, that which can distract us, that which we're called to avoid or turn away from, What about when teaching that is supposed to be biblical, teaching that is supposed to promote the gospel, mimics, as it were, pointless, empty nonsense? What about then? That's not cute at all, right? That's dangerous. Um, That's displeasing to the Lord. Uh, That's what we must turn away from and avoid. We're also called to avoid, turn away from, the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There's a type of knowledge, you see it in the text, it puts it in quotes. This isn't just, you know, my air quotes are mimicking the text here. Oh, this is knowledge. We figured something out that nobody else had figured out. There's a type of knowledge that is not really knowledge. It's mislabeled knowledge. It's falsely called knowledge. And that which is supposed to be known with this knowledge is not true. It's, the, it's contradictory to real knowledge, to what is true. It's the antithesis of what we ought to know and believe according to God's word. And those who would hold to this higher, special, new knowledge, the ones who profess allegiance to it rather than to true biblical knowledge have made a change in direction. They have departed. They have swerved from the faith. They have been distracted from their guard duty. They have abandoned their post. Once again, in the final words of his letters, he's done so many times, Paul is laying out two opposing directions that a church and that individual believers can take. The fork in the road, when you're heading in one direction, the fork in the road may seem insignificant, But the deviant path leads ultimately in the opposite direction from the gospel. The four verbs that we can see in this passage, uh, 19, 20, and 21, I see all four verbs as directional or attention related. Two sides. We need to ask, these verbs ask us, which direction, which way are you headed? We need to ask, uh, where is your gaze fixed? Are you guarding the gospel fixed on what you're supposed to be fixed on? And in doing so, are you turning away from its opposite? turning away from the false teaching. Are you guarding the gospel or are you professing false knowledge? Because those are the two directions that he has in this. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So you're either guarding the gospel or you're professing its opposite, directional terms. And then both of them involve turning away from the other. Guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoiding right? Do you see the turn? Avoiding the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For, po- for by professing it, there's the other directional term, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So there are turns happening in both and directions being assigned. So two directions, gospel or that which is falsely called knowledge, which direction are you facing? Where is your gaze fixed? And which are you actively working to turn from? It's the questions that he's been putting in front of Timothy uh, to give to the church in Ephesus throughout the letter. Only two directions, the heavenly gospel or worldly knowledge. Throughout his letter, Paul has sought to make these distinctions clear. And as we conclude our study of 1 Timothy together, I want to review all of it. I want to review all of it together to remind us of the deposit that we have been entrusted to guard, side one, heavenly gospel, and the false knowledge that we have been called to avoid. 
So I'm going to read the whole letter, comment briefly throughout to remind us of the things that we've learned in the last six, seven months. And as I do that, if you're taking notes, nothing's going to be on the the screen. Do have your Bible open to follow along, to see as you hear. Uh, If you are taking notes, I would maybe make two columns. One column of Direction one, heavenly gospel, that deposit which has been entrusted to us. And column two, that falsely, the contradictions falsely called knowledge, the irreverent babble, the the worthless side. Two sides, and the whole book does this in verbs and in nouns and all of these different things. Let us pray, and then we'll do this. Lord, thank you for Paul's letter to Timothy. Please guide us. Um, Let us hear from you as you are speaking. This word is breathed out from you. You're your spirit through your apostle to us. Uh, May it be profitable for us as, as a body and as individual followers of you. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. An apostle and his assistant, Paul working to ensure faithful gospel ministry, that those would happen in churches that he has founded for subsequent generations, knowing that it was bigger than just him. So he says, as I urged you when I, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. See it? Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Because faithful elders, like Paul, like Timothy, and like those that Timothy was to install to help lead Christ's church at Ephesus, faithful elders oppose false teaching and false teachers. They don't understand the law. Paul understands the law. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So we see a lawful use of the law promoting godliness. We see an unlawful use of the law being one of those false teaching distractions. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. We talked about it's not the law that leads to your justification. It's not for the just, but for the lawless and for the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and motherers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been, what's the word? Entrusted. Okay, so you see the bookends of what Paul is doing here. He's, I've been given this gospel. I'm handing it to you, Timothy, to teach faithfully at this church. And then as he writes in 2 Timothy, it's like, and you're passing this on until it lands in our hands or laps. What are we going to do with it? The law is good, not for our justification, not to make us righteous, but to confront sinners and reveal their need for Christ. And also, as we talked about back in whatever that was, January, the law also provides us guidance in our sanctification. Not here's how you become a Christian, but here's how you live as a Christian and the instructions that God has given us in his word. 
this gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I wonder if that made Paul reflect a little bit about his own life. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And if you don't know who Paul is, be like, well, of course, you're an apostle. He would trust you. Uh, But that wasn't Paul's former life. What was Paul's former life? Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners and not good sinners. Jesus saves bad sinners. Again, I don't know everything that you've done. You don't know everything that I've done. It's going to stay that way for all of us. But really, we're probably not worse than Paul. And yet, as an example to all of us, Jesus saved Paul. And if Jesus can save Paul, Jesus can save you. Christ has this gracious response and a strategic motivation. So are you convinced both for yourself and for others that the gospel is both undeserved and yet powerful to save even the foremost of sinners? Paul was convinced of that. So he glorifies our glorious God as, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge, that which has been entrusted to you, this command to others to not teach false doctrine any longer, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, not physical lineage, but spiritual lineage, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And in that day, through and up to this day, Sadly, we have examples of those who were seeming to pursue the right path and guard the deposit entrusted to them. That whether we find out in their life or at the conclusion of their life, what they had actually done was they had deviated and departed from the faith. And then when you look at their life as a whole, that which looked impressive, like the Titanic, it's actually a devastating shipwreck serves as a warning for all of us. The Christian life, the ministry of the gospel, they involve waging a good warfare, which requires faith and a good conscience. The alternative is this shipwrecked faith that Paul had handed over these to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And he enters into the body of his letter. First of all, then, it's like, wow, Paul, 20 verses, and you're just getting started in chapter two. He didn't write a chapter two. We wrote chapter, we say chapter two. But long introductions, biblical, right? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people or peoples, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. The first worship priority in the church as God's household is prayer, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. 
God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why should we pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people? Because God has purposed and Christ has died to save all kinds of people. West Virginians and the Tajik people, as was prayed. Every kindred tongue and people and nation that will be gathered to worship the Lamb. So we pray because God has purposed and Christ has died to save all kinds of people across time. Not all people will be saved, but some from all peoples will be saved because that is God's eternal purpose. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is for all peoples, there is one mediator between God and men for all peoples. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so it's like, okay, God has this purpose and Christ accomplishes it on the cross. And then it's like, and then what? Like, how does it get to those people? Laborers from his churches to go forth. Laborers that we are called to pray for and and to be right? Pray the Lord of the harvest, Jesus said, that he would send forth laborers, prayerful laborers who would go forth because God has purpose and Christ has died to save all kinds of people. But we must be a prepared people. We must be a worshipful people now and as, as we stay or as we Go. So what does behavior look like in the gatherings of God's people? I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So we as God's people, members of God's household, we must have hearts and lives prepared for worship, avoiding anger and quarreling and vanity and pride. And certain peoples, even certain genders may have tendencies toward one or the other. But as we saw, whenever that was, maybe we're in February at this point, women can be angry and quarrelsome and men can be vain and proud. But all of us are to avoid all of these things, whether we align with a particular tendency or whether we run counter to that. Worldliness said fleshliness has no place in the worship of God's people. And we must avoid those things as we pray and as we worship. And Paul enters into the question, who is to lead Christ's church? Christ isn't here. The apostles weren't present at that point. They weren't going to be on the scene forever. Neither was Timothy. So who is to lead Christ's church? And he begins answering that question in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So who is to lead Christ's church? We're entering into the question of qualifications and the qualifications for elders, according to scripture, black and white in front of me, excludes female disciples of Christ. They are not permitted to teach or exercise authority in the church, which is the primary role designated and assigned and bequeathed and entrusted to elders. Who is to lead Christ's church? Well, in Christ's physical absence from his people, he has ordained that certain men from among his people gathered in local churches should be called to serve him and those churches by representing him in leading those churches. And these must be godly men who are above reproach and faithful in their homes, in the church, 
and in the world. The saying is trustworthy. I'm in chapter 3. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. What does that look like, Paul? A husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Just remind you, two paths, two directions. The heavenly gospel, which is priceless and given to us by God, or that which is falsely called knowledge. That which really, when you look at it, just makes more sense. These primitive people, they just didn't, they just, God bless them, they just didn't know any better. But we do. You are deviating from the faith. And that's seen from, maybe we could say, the top down in a church. Unqualified, disqualified leaders leading the church is a deviation from the path. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Who are deacons? Well, qualified men in the body or are ordained to assist the elders in their ministry as deacons. In Christ's church, elders teach and exercise authority, and deacons assist them in carrying out these responsibilities. Deacons must be qualified. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The right leadership structure occupied by qualified men frees the rest of the body to serve each other for the honor and glory of God. The right leadership structure is a facet of guarding that which has been entrusted to us. The church, the gathering of God's people, the church is the household and family of God and must be committed to defending and proclaiming God's truth. Paul had made plans. Sometimes the plans happened. Sometimes the plans didn't happen. He made plans here. I hope to come to you soon, chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Raise your hand if you're glad that Paul had not been able to make that trip to Ephesus yet. Because if he had gone in person, maybe he wouldn't have written the letter. So I'm really glad that Paul was delayed in God's sovereignty because it gives us this book. A pillar and buttress, funny word, architectural support, right? Lifting it up, displaying it, honoring it, defending it. The church, the household, the family must be committed to defending and proclaiming God's truth. And then this great mystery of godliness is presented. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In order to live a life that pleases God, 
There's a life that pleases God. There's a life that does not please God. In order to live a life that pleases God, we must remain vigilant. Against what? The Spirit expressly says, chapter 4, that in later times, which is now, it was then, it's now, it's until Christ returns, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Well, what are these wicked people who have deviated? What kind of horrific, immoral things do they try to foist on God's people? Well, they forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Just read that again. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we must remain vigilant against demonic, deceitful, damning, false teaching. And one primary example of that type of false teaching is salvation through self-denial. We may be vigilant against salvation or satisfaction, or I don't really care what happens through, through self-indulgence, but Paul is warning the people of God against the damning, demonic, deceptive danger of salvation through self-denial. In opposition to this, we must live by faith and gratefully enjoy God's good gifts, not making the false distinction of, of either, well, I either love the giver or I love the gift. And we took, I think, actually two sermons then and later to point out it's not the giver or the gift, but what God wants from us is to enjoy him through his gifts, not worshiping the gifts and ignoring the giver. That's idolatry. But, oh, I just love the giver. I don't, I don't need any gifts. That's rejecting fatherly care and goodness of a creator who created food and drink and rest and play and relationships to be enjoyed that point us back to God, gratefully, worshipfully enjoying God's good gifts. If you put these things before the brothers, if you lay this out in front of the church, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ being trained or nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And the primary pastoral priority for elders in Christ's church is training ourselves to be godly. If I ignore my own pursuit of godliness, how can I help you train yourself, yourself to be godly? If I'm deviating, how can I point you in the right direction? Train yourself for godliness. Every elder, every deacon, every member, train yourself for godliness. And there's nourishment involved in that, and there's endurance involved in that, and there's sacrifice involved in that, and there's reward involved in that, with eyes set on that which is to come. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You know, sometimes you just go by a verse and you're just like, I'm reading a whole book, check. <laughs> At least today, got that one, co 
Got that one covered. Public reading of scripture. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so these elders that are supposed to be evaluated for qualification in serving Christ's church are also to be evaluated. Their success as elders is to be evaluated not by external things, but by his faithfulness to his responsibilities, by evaluating his success by his godly life in speech and conduct in love and faith in purity. Evaluating an elder's success by the priorities seen in the weekly gatherings of God's people. And so to look at the book as a whole, to go back to that R, that question that we're, we're commanding, the, the guarding aspect, are the elders asking myself, asking Jeremy and Fred and Lowell and Gerald and who did I miss? Ken. I'm just still getting used to my new list. Are we guarding that? In this hour and a half, every week, or are we deviating? Valuating an elder's success, not by the world's metrics, but by faithfulness to responsibility, godly life, and the priority seen in the weekly gatherings of God's people. And then Paul wants Timothy to instruct the body in acting like a spiritual family. We must treat our spiritual family, fathers, those who are older, brothers, uh, same, same age, mothers, older, sisters, same age. And we could throw kind of sons and daughters in there too. Paul just doesn't use that. We could just sort of fill that out. Whether older, same age, or younger, male or female, we have a responsibility to act out the fact that we're a spiritual family. Do not rebuke an older man. But encourage him as you would a father. Encourage younger men as brothers. Encourage older women as mothers. Encourage younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, especially members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So how we treat our spiritual family, how we treat our physical family, shows faithfulness or deviation. The church has a responsibility to care for widows in their midst as if they were our own mothers and grandmothers. Let a widow be enrolled, be cared for. If she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, faithfulness, having a reputation for good works, we're adding to our list. She's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Would that this list would be true, really, of, of all of us. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, right? Turn back from that. Marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. You're heading in one direction, turning from the other, or you're turning from the right direction, heading in the wrong direction. These deviations and departures and all of these things are so common throughout this letter. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them and let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Christ-exalting church honors its elders, protects its elders against false accusations. It publicly rebukes its elders when they sin. 
and it ordains its elders carefully. Verse 17, chapter 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Only time that it's okay for you to call me an ox. And the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge. Do not accept a false accusation. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But elders aren't above accusation. They aren't sinless and unrebukable. Matter of fact, they're held to a higher standard. As for those who persist in sin, those elders who are guilty, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And he sets up the witness stand in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. All will be revealed. God knows all. Faithfulness and sin. God judges rightly. We must be committed to doing the same. For a Christian, no area of life remains unaddressed or uninfluenced by the gospel. Kind of a double negative there. Every area of our lives, no matter what those areas are, all of it is influenced by the gospel. And once again, we look at what probably is a pretty extreme example of that. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. No area of life for a Christian remains unaddressed or uninfluenced by the gospel, not even a slave's responsibility to honor and obey his master. And just as, I don't think any of you are slaves. So if your circumstances aren't that bad, you don't have an out, right? Every area of every one of our lives must be addressed and influenced, really transformed by the gospel. Because Christianity is not about a change that is toward us, making everything better now, improving our circumstances. It's about a change in us in every circumstance, sickness, health, riches, poverty. We must recognize and oppose false teachers and false teaching. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, a dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction, among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This false teaching grows out of coveting and a love for money. It's a deviation that we must identify and root out. Godliness is a means of gain. We're in this for the money? No. But godliness with contentment is great gain, spiritual, eternal gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves 
with many pangs. Love of money is deviating. It is turning from that which has been entrusted to us. Many things can distract us and many dangers await us when we've been distracted and love of money is one of those distractions. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue, chase, attack, hunt down righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. As men of God, elders and deacons and all believers, we must chase after the right goals. We must fight to the finish. And we must remember that God is watching, not looking to slap us, but looking to help us. We're not alone in this fight. It's Christ's church. He didn't just die for it and then just leave it alone. He's, he's actively working in our midst. God is watching. Who is God? He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God, who is sovereign, who is transcendent, yet revealed in Christ, and who is worthy of our worship, he is the one who is watching over us, watching out for us. And it is in his presence that we are either guarding or swerving. As for the rich in this present age, what if even if we don't love it, we still have money? What do we do? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Those who are rich in this present age must avoid the arrogance and misplaced confidence that's so common among those who have more than they need at the moment. They must instead strive to grow in godliness and live out God's generosity to those in need. Like back-to-back showers for, for brides and babies. Or a family of dearly loved believers who have lost everything and we put before you the need, and I, I, don't even, I don't even have a question that you've risen up and given those things. Like I know, and I'm thankful that what we're able to provide for these believers who went from having probably more than they needed, like we all have more than we needed, to not having what they needed, not having enough because it's all destroyed in a moment. And so isn't that interesting that the Lord provides that text and then this call, here's an opportunity to be generous and ready to share. And I'm just confident that you have. And may God be glorified in that. We're storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future, taking hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy. This is great. We don't really write like that very much, and some translations actually leave out that O, oh, but it's in there. Oh, Timothy. Like it's, it's endearment. It's attention. I mean, so many of the letters are just written to groups. This letter is written right to him. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Two choices are set before us. 
us, you and me, us. Two choices set before us. We can guard the deposit entrusted to us, or we can depart from the faith. Despite our best intentions, right? Maybe this is like, that's like a rousing thing. Two choices, guard or depart. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to guard. Well, despite our best intentions and the encouragement that we can offer to each other on our own, every single one of us would inevitably deviate and abandon the truth of the gospel. Every single one of us on our own, would depart from the faith. But thankfully, we are not on our own. And it's not just that we have each other. That's not enough. We have God with us, the God of truth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives life to all things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of grace, the God who treats sinners like Paul or like us in a way that we don't deserve, extending favor and blessing, giving us physical and spiritual things for us to enjoy that we should not have access to. Yet that grace is overflowing to us, like the mercy that is in Christ Jesus. So God's grace and the God who gives that grace, right? he just doesn't send it from afar. He, he gives it to his people. He writes here, grace be with you. That you is plural. You got a little note there. It's one of, the, one of the many faults in the English language that we have no second person plural pronoun. Well, most English speakers don't. Here in Appalachia, we do. And so the best way to translate this, if we're going to be literal, would be grace be with y'all. Just saying. Paul, in writing to Timothy, isn't that so many of these things are, are individual commands. Paul's writing to Timothy this whole time, right? So this doesn't have anything to do with me. This, or maybe it does because I'm an elder. I'm, I'm a teaching pastor here. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with you. But he doesn't say grace be with you, one singular, Timothy. He says grace be with you all or y'all. Who is the y'all? The whole church at Ephesus. This isn't just for Timothy. This is for all of God's people. Paul, in writing to Timothy, is not just writing to Timothy, but knowing that Timothy would have this letter read in the church at Ephesus, it would be passed on to others. He's writing to the whole church where Timothy served, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is writing not just to them, he is writing across 2,000 years and 5,000 miles to us with the same concluding prayer and promise. Grace be with you all. Lord, I want to be a faithful follower of yours. I want to lead this church, to guard the deposit entrusted to us. We are insufficient for these things, but our sufficiency comes from Christ, who is more than sufficient. Would you keep us in your grace? Would you help us to avoid irreverent babblings, distractions of lesser things, contradictions of your truth, that which is falsely called knowledge? May we not try to be impressive to each other or to the world's standards, but instead to be faithful to uh, that which has once for all been delivered to the saints. Keep us from stumbling and use Risen King Church for your glory now uh, until Christ comes back. Amen.